Howdy, howdy, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number, I believe it's number seven, off the top of my head, of the Fight Figures podcast. I'm Callum, your intrepid host. We were off for a week there. In fact, I mean, it's Saturday the 11th of June here in Australia, 2.27pm currently. So I'm leaving this about as late as I possibly could. A big part of the reason for that is just simply, last week's events, I didn't really give a shit about to be honest, I, I didn't. I just didn't have enough to talk about when it came to the Volkov Rosenstruck card. I could have talked about Evloev versus Egay, previewed that for a bit. Talked about the controversy controversy regarding Mozarov, Askar Mozarov, who had it had been revealed throughout the course of the week that he had fabricated a significant portion of his professional record. He changed names multiple times in professional competition to erase losses that he'd taken in a row. So we, we could have talked about that, and we could have maybe talked about Karolina Kovalkiewicz versus Felice Herrig because they had a banger of a fight back in 2018, and this was a rematch, and you know, interesting, whatever. But I just didn't give enough of a shit. And ultimately, I thought the card was fine. JJ Aldrich disappointed me and got fucking choked out by Aaron Blanchfield. That disappointed me because I love JJ Aldrich. Uh, Rinat Fakradinov got a victory over Andreas Mikolaitis, whose name I've just completely butchered. I saw that one and I was like, that's cool, whatever. Jeff Molina got a pretty decent win against Zumagulov. Who else? Carolina Kovalkiewicz, her victory over Felice Herrig was really heartwarming in the sense that Carolina hasn't won in fucking yonks. But I thought she looked pretty decent here. Yeah, cool. I don't know, there just wasn't a lot on the card that that really inspired interest uh, beforehand and subsequent to to the event. So I'm really not going to talk about that much today. We're two minutes in and that's probably the end of talking about that fight night. Instead, we're mainly going to be previewing UFC 275, which is the pay-per-view card that's coming up this week. This weekend, and by this weekend I mean tomorrow, the weigh-ins have already been completed. I feel like they were completed two days in advance, like a day and a half in advance, which is weird. It was really weird. Like there's two sleeps between the weigh-ins and the fight card, and that's weird. But we're probably going to be talking about, about a bit about that. We're also very briefly going to touch on, what's his name? Haney versus Cambosis, because I haven't done a a podcast since that fight happened, and that fight was interesting, and has some implications for the rest of that division, but also, yeah, I don't know, yeah, it was it was a little bit disappointing in the sense that I expected George Cambosis to do more shit, and he didn't really do any shit, but it was still very interesting, I think, in technical terms, so we're going to talk about that really quickly, I guess, now. Yeah, I actually recorded an entire companion audio for that. Like, I had, I started it as they did the walkouts, and then I was just commentating each individual round up until about the 10th round, I think, and then I had some audio issues, or I had some technical issues, and I had to abandon the whole fucking thing. It was very irritating. But yeah, I was, uh, I don't have my scorecards on me, unfortunately, but if I recall correctly, I think... Uh, the first round for George Cambosis, I thought he came out looking decent, but neither guy was throwing much at all. I just thought he had more volume and, and landed a couple more successful shots. And then Haney won the next two rounds, and then there was a there was a patch there. This was the thing that irritated me, because I was watching, like I was keeping my eye on the live discussion on the boxing subreddit, 
and seeing what people were saying there, as well as seeing what people were saying on Twitter in between rounds. And people were talking mad shit, and I was seeing scorecards like, you know, through eight rounds, I was seeing people saying 7-1 Haney, and I'm like, you are fucking blind. I fucking, it, it, it just reiterated to me that I hate boxing commentators, and I hate boxing uh, watchers, viewers, for the most part, because they value fuck all. They value the minutia, the things which don't, like, come on, sometimes we need to take, we need to be realistic and, and look at a, two sets of punches and evaluate one as being more impactful than the other. And George Cambosis, there were points where he was just, he was landing the bigger shots and he was taking rounds, or at the very least, he was making rounds which were contentious. And there were people running around going, oh, you know, it's 5-1 in favor of Haney, and that's indisputable. You cannot score it in favor of Cambosis. The fight is completely away from Cambosis. And I'm like, are you actually watching the fucking fight? Cambosis, halfway through the contest, was landing the more significant shots. He just wasn't landing enough of them to be, to win any rounds particularly convincingly. But I thought, I, I thought, I had him up about five rounds in, six rounds in, and then from like the seventh round to the twelfth, the the second half of the fight was all Haney, I think I scored, I think I scored every single round after that point, I think I scored at 8-4 in favor of Haney, I don't know, I need to rewatch the the twelfth round because I didn't, I wasn't paying as much attention, part of the reason for that was just fight seemed kind of over at that point, you know, Cambosis was really struggling to counter anything, and it just seemed like there wasn't anything else, you know, we we were essentially waiting for the decision to be read out, it was a formality, that final round was, so I, I might have scored it in favour of Haney 7-5, as opposed to 8-4, but either way, I had Haney winning absolutely, I don't think anyone really disagrees with that assessment, I think, yeah, there were, there were some interesting things going on. Early on in the fight, I thought Cambosis kind of struggled just countering with single shots. But then once he started actually opening up with combinations, he had some more success. Yeah, it just felt like from the fourth round onwards, I think, well, for, for like the fourth, fifth, and sixth, it felt like Cambosis started trying to counter in combination. He was throwing three-punch counter combinations and was having a bit more success with that. I thought it was it was heaps of fun watching them try and left-hook each other because they're, they're so incredibly quick. I mean, it's the lightweight division. Everyone in that division is fucking fast as shit, but both of them came with the speed. It was really interesting in those middle rounds just watching each other try and figure out the counter opportunities and there were there were some points in those middle rounds where I thought Cambosis was doing really good work framing on the face of Haney he was he was entering the pocket and then Haney would kind of drop and look for the clinch and Cambosis would frame on the face and then pivot around the lead foot and then try and pop him with the right hand didn't have a whole lot of success with it as you're probably quite aware Cambosis you know, his punching statistics throughout the course of the fight weren't extremely positive, but he did land a couple of decent shots in those positions. I thought that was really good. You know, if you're getting outboxed on the outside, if if you can't deal with the, the really extensive jab of your opponent, and Devin Haney has a very long jab, fuck it, just get on the inside frame on their face and try and beat them up in the in the pocket, in the clinch. Do that. That works. You know? A referee... It's very difficult for them to get right in between you the second you clinch up. They're going to give you a second to work. Even even if they're 
I've forgotten his fucking name. Who's who's the dude who works with Floyd all the time? Kenny Bayless, that's it. Yeah, Kenny Bayless, like, he'll jump in and he will separate motherfuckers the second they start clinching. He will not let them work in the clinch. Which is why he was selective for so many of Floyd's fights, is, you know, Floyd would clinch up when he needed to close distance and prevent his opponents from, from flurrying on him, flurrying in on him, and then Kenny Bayless would, like, not let them work in the clinch at all, would break them up, put them back to the outside, and then Floyd could get to work with his jab, and, you know, he had that option to just break down the clinch and break down the momentum every single opportunity he wanted, and he wouldn't suffer the consequences in the clinch, but still, even when you've got a motherfucker like Kenny Bayless refereeing, they aren't going to be able to jump in in two and a half seconds flat, There, there's going to be a little... There's going to be a brief moment where you can work, particularly if you're framing on the face, because it kind of it enters this, it enters this grey area, where it's not, it's not like you have over unders. It's not like you have double underhooks or you know you're both resting on each other and it's just this neutral position. If you've got your your arm, your forearm across the face of your opponent, it still feels very offensive and it feels like this this middle ground between clinching and separation. And so I think it gives a referee a moment of, well, do I separate them? Because he, it clearly looks like he's about to work out of the clinch himself, and as such, I don't need to break up the action. That would just stilt the flow of the contest. So I thought Cambosis did a good job utilizing, like dirtying up the exchanges in that regard in the middle portion of the fight, and then in the last portion of the fight, man, there was a round, I think it was like the ninth or the 10th, and it just felt like Haney just popped his head back with a jab, like five times in a row, and it was so frustrating to watch, obviously, I wasn't, I wasn't there, as I made note in the beginning of this podcast, I just said that I was doing that companion audio to the fight, so I was obviously at home, I wasn't at Marvel Stadium, I do live in Melbourne, so I probably, I was thinking about going down there, but I'd finished work the night prior at 4am, didn't feel up to spending, I think it was like 50, 50 bucks, and I'd be on like the second floor, which isn't too bad, but I, I wasn't particularly interested in going down to the fight and going down to Marvel, I'd have to catch like a tram and, and do a bit of a, do a bit of a walk, and I just didn't feel up to it. But yeah, if I hadn't been in that fucking crowd and those would have been the final few rounds, it would have been like, really? Really? You know, this isn't super fun. But you know, credit to Devin Haney. Did some good shit. His speed sensational. What fights do we see next? Everyone's talking about Tank Davis versus, or a few people are talking about Tank Davis versus Ryan Garcia. I think if you put Tank Davis in there with Devin Haney, Tank Davis gets fucking decapitated. So you better you better set him up with a like a number one contenders fight, sorta. Do you do like we could do a you could do a Cambosis versus Tank Davis, I guess. But you could probably you should do Cambosis versus Lopez two or some shit. I don't know. So much of this is dependent on what Lomachenko does. Is he coming back soon? I don't know. Well, I mean, he's still over in Ukraine, he's still defending the homeland, so don't know when that's going to change, when that situation's going to gonna switch up, so for the time being, this lightweight division is in is in a sort of flux. Uh, I believe, yeah, there was, a, there was a rematch clause for Cambosis. 
I don't know whether the rematch clause was specifically for Australia, whether that fight has to take place in Australia. I don't think it does. I think it can take place over in the US. I'm sure that rematch clause will be exercised. Haney himself said, if I beat Cambosis in Australia, I will give him a rematch. You know, no problem, whatever. So, yeah, hopefully we will see a rematch in the near future. And I, I do genuinely think Cambosis can make the alterations and the adjustments necessary to win that rematch. I do believe that. This isn't a scenario where it's like, eh, I think the rematch is just a formality. No, no, I think I think Cambosis can win that rematch. I think the second fight would be much more interesting. I think he knows what to expect at this point, and I think the team can game plan a lot better the second time around. Anyway, that was that. What else do we have to talk about? Let's fucking talk about quickly uh, UFC 275. This isn't going to be a long po- podcast. This is probably going to be a significantly shorter podcast than usual. I assume, I don't know, sometimes I fucking, I say that at the beginning of an episode and then I end up waffling and it turns into an hour and ten minutes long, so don't trust anything I'm saying. We're not going to talk about Valentina Shevchenko versus Talia Santos. I don't give a shit about that fight. I don't give a shit whether Talia Santos wins. I don't give a shit whether Shevchenko, I mean, she probably won't decapitate Santos or anything. I think this is just another opportunity to be like, bruh. Why are motherfuckers on Twitter pretending that Shevchenko is an absolute murderer? Did y'all see her fight with Liz Carmouche? Did y'all see it? Was I the only one who watched that fight? I hope I was the only one who watched that fucking fight because it's a terrible goddamn fight and I do not wish that upon anyone. Anyone. I don't think my worst enemy should be forced to watch that contest. It's a terrible, terrible contest. So yes, she decapitated Jessica I, but that's Jessica motherfucking I. What do you expect? She, I don't know. Just not that interesting to me. But the main event, fuck me, the main event's great. And there's a couple of really good Australian fighters on this card as well. And there's also an Australian fighter fighting someone who I much prefer. Jake Matthews is fighting Andre Fialio, who is on an insane run of activity at this point. Is this his fourth fight this year? When did he fight Michelle Piera? He fought him in January of this year. So he fought Michelle Piera at UFC 270 in January. He fought Miguel Bieza. TKO'd him in the first round with that, like, that was a wild fight, and then he, he won with that crazy left hook in the first round, that was in April, and then he fought again a couple of weeks later at UFC 274 against Cameron Van Camp, won that fight, I don't think anyone was doubting he was going to win, that was a weird scenario, he stepped in on short notice, and now he's stepping in again, it is the 11th, well, what is it going to be in the Northern Hemisphere, it's going to be the 11th of the 6th, isn't it? So, it's just over a month since that fight. Just over a month since he fought Cameron Van Camp. He is now fighting again. So, Fialio is at this point on track for like six fights this year. <laughs> Obviously, a big part of it, I mean, his his consistency will be determined by whether or not he actually gets out of this unscathed. I think he will, if I'm being honest with you. I haven't seen a crazy amount of his grappling, unfortunately. I'm excited to see his grappling in this context, though, because Jake Matthews will be spamming takedowns. He will be spamming low singles and and some double legs. Counter double legs, hopefully. I'm excited to see that fight. I think if Andre Fialio can keep it standing, he butchers Jake Matthews. I expect the knockout blow to be reminiscent of... Do you remember when Damian Meyer fought Nate Marquardt and Damian goes for that kick 
and Marquardt comes down the middle with, I think it's a straight right, and Maya just ends up fucking flying through the air. It's a crazy knockout. It's really visually stimulating, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's kind of the image I have in my head, but it's not going to be a straight right down the barrel. It's going to be a left hook over the guard. Yeah, that's what I see happening. That's the image I've got in my head, honestly, because Matthews does get a bit flippant with his naked body high, body and high kicks, and low kicks as well. I can see him throwing a kick and Fialio countering him with that mean left hook he has, and bada-bing, bada-boom, what do you know? Jake Matthews is now fucking flat on the canvas. I think that will be a fantastic fight. Uh, Jack Della Maddalena is also returning this week. He is fighting uh, Amiev, which is fucking dope. Amiev is a bit of a step up. I mean, it's definitely a step up compared to his last opponent. His last opponent was a dude who was his UFC debut. And what was the issue again? I think someone fell out of that fight with Della Maddalena at the last minute. And that's why this random motherfucker pulled up. Hold on, I'm jumping on Tapology. I'm seeing what they say. That was it. Here on Tapology, it it says that he was meant to fight Wally Alves. But he ended up fighting Pete Rodriguez. Knocked him out just shy of three minutes into the first round. Really impressive victory. Not a great opponent, of course. His opponent was like 4-0. So not not much experience at all. I understand that Jack himself doesn't have a whole lot of experience, but he has 12 fights. He has 12 fights versus 4 fights. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. And he, and he had a fight on the Contender Series prior to that versus Angelusa. Losa, I still can't pronounce his fucking name. I apologize, my man. That was a banger of a fight, and I think that really set him up. I mean, that that essentially served as UFC experience. Even though technically that fight with Rodriguez was his UFC debut, he'd already had a UFC fight at that point. And then prior to that point, he he'd also he'd fought the who's who of the welterweight division over in Australia. I mean, he'd had a couple of cancelled fights. He was set to fight Saeed Fadafa back in. February of last year, Eternal MMA 56, he was set to fight him, and then that ended up not transpiring, and then he ended up ended up in the Contender Series in September of last year, so all kind of worked out, but everyone else in the fucking game, he has fought. He initially started with a kind of rough, it was a rough start to his, his professional mixed martial arts career. He had two consecutive losses by finish. First one was a, he was... TKO'd by Alden Bates. TKO'd or KO'd? Doesn't say here on on Tapology. And then he got choked out in the first round by Darcy Vendy. But then he's had some fucking sensational wins. There was that 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 knockout over Ty Duncan back in 2017. The one that really jumps out at me is the one over Kevin Doucette back at Eternal MMA 48. That is a banger. Y'all need to go and watch that fight. And particularly against a guy who is a really legit judo black belt in in the form of Kevin Jusset. I thought his counter grappling was really good in that contest. And he was just so composed. And it was a bloody ass fucking fight. It got stopped at the end of the fifth round because of a cut that Jusset had sustained. Yeah, and, and when you watch that contender series fight with Losa... You go, yeah, no, I can see how Kevin got cut because the elbows that Madalena fires off are brutal. When he throws them, they are brutal. So I think this is this is certainly a step up in competition, but I think it's the right level of step up for Della Madalena. And I think it will be a bit of a banger. 
Jacob Malkoon is also going to be fighting Brendan Allen, which is very irritating because I like Jacob Malkoon. He trains with Robert Whittaker. Robert Whittaker is over in Singapore to corner Malkoon for this fight. And yet he's fighting Brendan Allen, who I have a bit of an affinity for. Ever since that fight with, with what's his name? Punelle Soriano back in July of last year. I mean, I'd previously kind of been taking note of Brendan Allen, but I'd never considered him that interesting. But that fight with Soriano, I kind of came into it going, eh, I don't think Brendan Allen, besides the grappling, is going to offer Soriano that many issues on the feet. And then I thought his striking looked really solid. He got hit quite a bit, but I thought, yeah, he was he was always there. Great jab. Good work with the guard. I thought defensively he was pretty decent. Left hook, counter left hook looked good. Yeah, I thought, just generally speaking, he looked very solid. And then he had that that step back against Chris Curtis. Chris Curtis got that crazy knockout in the second round. First round, Brendan Allen looked sensational against Curtis, and then and Curtis worked his way back into it. Most recently, Brendan Allen got back in the win column against your, everyone's favorite fighter, Sam Alvey. That was a joke. We don't like Sam Alvey here because he's against unionization. And fighters against unionization, they fuck up everything for all the other fighters. Because dissension in fighters is what fucks up unionization efforts. And Sam Alvey thinks he's going to be the next Conor McGregor, and it hurts the collective bargaining for the rest of those who might believe in fucking unionization. Anyway, so, not that I ever wish, like, pain and suffering on a fighter. But damn, it was kind of satisfying to watch Alvy get choked the fuck out. By Brandon Allen, who I happen to like a little bit. Yes. That's an interesting fight. I think Brandon Allen has come really far in terms of his striking. Jacob Malkoon looked a lot better because he lost his UFC debut, if I recall correctly. Yeah, he lost that, that fight with Phil Hawes in 18 seconds. That was it. UFC 254. I think that was the same card that Robert Whittaker fought Jared Cannonier, if I can recall correctly. Yes, because it would have been the Khabib Gaethje card. So yes, basically Robert had hooked his teammate up with a UFC roster position and <laughs> Malkoon came out to Abu Dhabi and got starched in 18 seconds and made us all go, wow, Maybe that shouldn't have happened. Maybe the UFC shouldn't have okayed that, particularly given Malkoon at the time was 4-0. He hadn't fought that much in super legit organizations prior to entering the UFC. He'd fought once in Eternal MMA, once in Hex. He'd had a... Uh, Wollongong Wars isn't actually that bad of a promotion. There's There have been some... I believe Alexander Volkanovsky came out of Wollongong Wars. Colby Thickness... Thickness, I can never pronounce his fucking name, man. But he's basically Volk's uh, protege right now. Yeah, I think he's fought in Wollongong Wars as well. Like, it's not a super... It's not, like, a really dingy promotion or anything, but it's not cream of the crop. That's beside the point, I guess. He was 4-0, whatever. And then... Got starched by Phil Hawes really early on in the fight. And then he had that really impressive win over Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Wrestled the shit out of him. And if I'm being honest, I cannot recall his victory over AJ Dobson. I cannot recall how that went down. I just thought he was really tenacious against Al-Hassan, who obviously wants to stand and bang and beat the shit out of you on the feet. His takedown tenacity was really impressive, Malcolm. So I'm excited to see 
that fight, I think that should be a very interesting one. I think Brennan Allen's probably going to take it, but Malkoon is very, uh, he's very solid on top. I thought his takedown variety against Al-Hassan was, was really solid. I thought he was good and strong in the body lock. He was strong on top. He was shooting for doubles and singles, varying things up. I thought he was really good. Who else is Australian on this card? Is that all the Australians that I that I've touched on now? Because there were a few. There's Jake. There's Jack. There's Jacob. I think there was one more that I am completely missing. Josh Kilabau. That's it. He is headlining the prelims versus Song Woo, Song Woo Choi, who I cannot recall having seen off the top of my head. Oh, he lost to Alex Caceres very recently. I think I did see that. He landed an illegal knee in the first round. I do remember that. That was interesting. That was the cost of a Tory card back in October. Yeah. He he's been in he's been in the UFC for a little while. He came in, debuted against Evluev, lost to Evluev by decision, lost by submission to Gavin Tucker. Who we like. We're a big fan of Gavin Tucker here. He's a fun striker. Beat Suman Mokhtarian, who's not good. Beat Yusuf Salal. Beat Julian Arosa. That one's an impressive win. That was a TKO early in the first round. He is a Korean fighter. I believe... Does he fight out of the same gym as the Korean zombie? Not to sound like a racist. I, I don't assume that everyone who comes out of fucking Korea trains at the same gym as the Korean zombie. But there, there have been a couple of people who've come into the UFC from that same gym. And he's fought a couple of times on Korean Zombie cards. That Part of that is just... Uh, well, he, he fought on the same card as the Korean Zombie when he fought Ige, and that was in Las Vegas. So it's not just, oh yeah, bring the South Koreans and chuck them on the South Korean card. It's also like, oh, Zombie's fighting, we'll chuck, we'll chuck Wu Choi on there. How good. Yeah, so he got that, that impressive victory over Julian Arosa, and then he had that fight with Alex Caceres that made us all go, you fucking idiot. <laughs> and then Caceres got the got the submission in the second round. I like Josh Kulabau. I don't think he has a super high ceiling. Well, he came in and he came into the UFC and like so many Australians, got fucking starched. Why does this happen? That's like Justin Tuffer. He came in his first fight, I think he was 3-0, 4-0, or something like that, professionally. And he came in at UFC 243 at Marvel Stadium. He comes in against Jorgen De Castro and then gets starched like two minutes into the first round. And then he's had kind of an up-and-down career since then in, in the UFC. He's been very entertaining, win or loss, so I don't think he'll be getting cut, particularly given the like how shitty the heavyweight division is once you go past like the top five top 10 fighters it's pretty it's pretty barren down there so yeah but that seems like a recurring theme in the world of Australian mixed martial artists making it to the UFC they come into the UFC pretty well hyped but half of them haven't had that much experience outside the UFC and then they get in and they get starched by someone who has had more experience than them Kilabau came in little better. He came in 8-0, and then Jalen Turner pulled up and was like, bruh, I'm a beat your ass. Jalen Turner pulled up with 14 fights versus 8 and decided, I'm a whip your ass, and he did. He did indeed. But hey, that loss to Turner occurred up at lightweight, then he came back down to featherweight, had a draw with Charles Jourdain, 
And then most recently, he got a decision victory over, oh wow, I cannot remember how to pronounce his name, Nwerdambike. Wow, that was probably really bad. I haven't been super impressed by him, but he puts on pretty decent activity. I, I, I'm I excited to watch this fight. I think that'll be it. Be an interesting fight. I don't have much more to say beyond I'm interested in that fight, unfortunately. The ones that I can actually provide some decent preview for. Let's talk about the main event. Because I've just spent fucking 25 minutes, 20 minutes waffling about Australians that you probably don't give a shit about, except for Jack Della Maddalena. That's probably it. You probably don't give a shit about the rest of them. Let's talk about the main event. Glover Teixeira versus Yuri Prohaska. Glover Teixeira, we love... I did a video about him a little while ago that you might have seen on the Fight Figures YouTube channel. He He's kind of had an up-and-down career in the UFC. Got close to title shots on multiple occasions. I mean, he had his title shot against John Jones back in 2014, I think it was. Yes, it was. And then immediately lost to Phil Davis and then kind of just went up and down. He had that, T, that, that submission over OSP. Like, went on a three-fight win streak, got that that KO over Rashad Evans that kind of put him right in the picture. That was when Evans... That was when Rashad was on the downturn, but we didn't know how bad the downturn was. And then... And then he got fucking... He got his head sent into orbit by Rumble in 13 seconds at UFC 202, which we all remember. And then he had that really impressive veteran performance against Jared Cannonier at UFC 208. Which is one of the worst. That, in my opinion, that is the worst card in UFC history. So bad. Such a such a boring, terrible card. And then he got tuned up for five rounds by Alexander Gustafson, who realized, "Hey, look, if I just uppercut, uppercut this motherfucker. Yes, I don't have the power, the instant one punch KO power of Rumble, but I can I can kind of extrapolate that scenario to a five round fight, and I'll probably win a decision that way." And well, he did. He just kept throwing the uppercut against Glover. And every single time he did, it's like Glover had to reset his brain and go, you know what, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't let that happen again. And then he would. He would let it happen again every goddamn time. He just, yeah. And then the finishing combination in that fight is like a three, it's like three rear-hand uppercuts in a row from Gustafson. And then he pivots off his lead foot, steps around Glover as Glover tries to counter and then throws a straight right down the barrel and Glover's completely out of it. That's the end of the fight. And then Gustafson proposed to his fucking wife. You know, or proposed to his girlfriend at the time. Not a good night for Glover in that sense. So yeah, he's been up and down. Was able to beat Misha Serkinov. I believe, if I recall correctly, he had some issues with Misha at the beginning of the fight, but then he was able to come back and then lost to Corey Anderson. And that Corey Anderson fight made us all go, "Bro, bro, you just lost to Corey Anderson." I think we need to have the chat. I think we need to sit down. And we have we need to have a very conscientious, thoughtful discussion about your career, career, and maybe we need to reconsider some some things. You know, talk about post fighting. What are we going to be doing? And then Glover said, "Fuck y'all, fuck all your bullshit. I'm gonna go on a run." And now he's on a six fight win streak, and he has the UFC light heavyweight championship. It's really crazy. And pretty much all of them, except for the the fight for the belt, pretty much all of them have involved him nearly getting decapitated before winning the fight. Again, I reiterate, go back and watch my video on Glover Teixeira. It was from 2020, right before the Tiago Santos fight. We broke down his like four most recent wins and how in each of them, he just 
he, there's so much, so many issues for him. He's like Charles Oliveira in the sense that it's like he needs to be put on his ass and nearly knocked the fuck out before he wakes up and decides, you know what, I can I can just grab a single leg. I'm a better grappler than 99% of the division. Why don't I just grab a single leg and I just wrestle the shit out of them? And then he fucking does. Carl Robertson nearly got, nearly got butchered with some elbows, which kind of looked illegal. Actually, no, they went 12 to, they went 12 to 6. It's fine, it's fine. Carl Robertson basically had sent Glover on a stretcher. He was already on the stretcher, and then he just, you know, he pulled an Undertaker. It was that meme where the Undertaker sits up all of a sudden, and is like, no, I'm not done, actually. That's what it felt like. Carl Robertson had Glover dead to rights, elbowing the shit out of his head, and then Glover just went, you know what, fuck you, I'm going to submit you. And then he did. He did it, like, a minute later. Nearly got murdered, and then a minute later he had a head and arm choke and, and got the victory. Really awesome win. That was the Cejudo Dillashaw card. That was at the beginning of 2019. His 2019 run, run was pretty fucking awesome. I mean, he goes and he fights Eon Kutalaba in April of that year. And again, Eon beat the piss out of him in the first round. Nearly TKO'd him. There's a point in that first round where Eon literally pushes Glover over. Like, Glover's so fucked up. And then... Glover just outlasted him and started landing his overhand right, started looking for his left hook to the body, landed it a couple of times and caused Kutalaba some issues, and Kutalaba fucking gasped because that's what he does. And yeah, Glover took over and in the second round was able to get a, a rear naked choke. His work transitioning to the mount and then taking the back after that, ugh, shit was good. Again, go watch my video because we do a very brief breakdown like this is how he moves, he moves from here to here to here, and it's just... Sometimes I I cut these things up and I make it look like the transitions happen a lot quicker than they actually do. Like it's actually a 45 second sequence. A fighter going from half guard to side control to mount to taking the back. It might take 45 seconds and I cut it down to 5 seconds just for ease of viewing. But Glover is so good at using things like the crossface, using things like the tripod to pass guard. I mean, part of it is, again, that the light heavyweight division is a barren wasteland for the most part, but damn, he just looked so good passing the guard of Kutalaba in that fight, in that second round. It was so impressive. And then he had that fight with Nikita Krylov, September of 2019, got a split decision. That fight was so frustrating as a Glover Teixeira fan, because you're watching it going, Glover, Glover, Glover. You nearly submitted him like three fucking times. How about we just chill the fuck out, and instead of going for the submission, you just take the position. You just sit in, you sit in, in his guard, and you beat him up with some elbows, or some fucking punches for, for 30 seconds. Just, how about you forget about the submission for a second, and just think about sitting in a position where you'll get points. How about we think about that? And then he just, he just wouldn't. There was, I think, he nearly submitted Krilov, like, a minute into the fight, 90 seconds into the fight, and then he slipped off the back or something like that, and then Krilov got on top and nearly nearly submitted him. And it was like the second round, Krilov, I think nearly got an armbar or something like that. I, I can't remember what position he was exactly in, but Krilov got very close to a submission in that second round. And yeah, so much of it was like, Glover, we don't need to be in this position. You could just not try and roll for some shit. Like, stop seeking out a submission. Just 
remain calm. But he got that win. That was cool. Then there was the Anthony Smith victory where he was getting punked for two straight rounds and then Anthony Smith's gas tank just went off a fucking cliff and Glover was like, you know what, I'm going to start beating the shit out of you. And he did. It kind of reminded me of Rockhold versus Weidman. It was a beatdown from the third round onwards. It's that difficult one because a lot of people talk about it like the fight should have been called by the referee midway through the third round, or midway through the third or the fourth, one of the two. But Anthony Smith was doing things like he was maintaining grips, he was getting underhooks, and he was kind of sitting up like he was about to threaten a single leg or something like that because Glover does so much of his work from half guard, and that's where so much of the fight took place. So much of the fight took place in half guard, and it gives Anthony Smith this opportunity to 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 get an underhook and sit up and potentially threaten the single leg to get back up. But in doing so, he's making it look like there's an opportunity for him to intelligently defend himself. So Jason Herzog, the referee, goes, well, I won't stop the fight because it looks like Anthony Smith is genuinely working to get himself get himself out of this bad position. But he didn't have the strength, he didn't have the gas tank to get Glover off of him. So he just ends up taking this five-round fucking beating where Glover takes years off his life. Not ideal. Not ideal at all. Corner should have called that fight off. But yeah, that was a really impressive win from Glover, particularly after the first two rounds where... Anthony's jab looked so good. He was throwing a double jab cross that just, I don't know, it was one of the best technical striking performances that I've seen out of Anthony Smith to date. I thought it was really impressive. And then Glover kind of weathered the storm, came back in the third, fourth, and fifth rounds and just did work. Landed a couple of high kicks as well. It was weird. It was weird seeing a man high kick a dude that much taller than him. It was good fun though. Had a Had a good time. And then... So we talked about all those fights in my video on Glover Teixeira back in 2020, and then he fought Tiago Santos, and in that video that I did on Glover Teixeira, I was basically like, this is going to be a banger, it'll probably be crazy, Glover will probably get decapitated and then come back and win. Well, I don't think I actually, I didn't give a legitimate prediction, but I said, I mean, that's what I'd been talking about the entire video, and that's what I thought going into that fight, that Glover could genuinely win this, but he's probably going to get knocked down before he wins, and that's exactly what happened, <laughs> he nearly got knocked the fuck out, like, multiple times by Santos, and then he got a rear naked choke in the third round, I mean, that was a fucking banger, it's a fight that gets forgotten about, I don't think people talk about that fight enough, in terms of the pandemic era fights, there was, there was some dope fights, but I don't think the Apex has held fights as entertaining as Tiago Santos versus Glover Teixeira, it hasn't held that many as entertaining as that fight. And then he comes into that fight with Glover, not Glover Teixeira, that fight with Jan Blahovic, did some dope shit, had that, that can opener, in the first round, where he was in, he was in, uh, what's it called, guard, he was in Jan's guard, and just can open, can open the shit out of Jan, initially Jan looked pretty solid in that fight, but I don't know, there was a point, I think it was after, yeah, he was put on his back for an extended period of time. It just it just felt like he had absolutely nothing for Glover, and Glover was just able to push the pace until he got the finish in the middle of the second round. That was, yeah. Impressive victory by Glover. Part of me is like, eh, that felt more like Jan just not living up to what he had showcased in his previous two fights versus Izzy and versus, versus Reyes. That's kind of what it felt like. And, and his fight against Luke Rockhold, I thought his grappling in that fight, his defensive grappling was sensational in that fight. Part of that is obviously Luke Rockhold's a bit of a smaller, light heavyweight. I mean, he'd come up from middleweight, so, you know. But 
yeah, I thought his defensive grappling looked great in that, and then it looked not great against Glover. So, I don't know, man. Uh, yeah, I think that was, part of that fight was just Jan Blahovic not living up to the expectations he had already established with his previous performances, and a part of it was obviously Glover rising to the occasion and, and doing some dope shit. What are the things we know about Glover? Well, his striking defense isn't sensational. He does move, he bobs his head a lot. But he does get caught out with the jab quite a bit. Does get caught out with the jab quite a bit. His his striking arsenal is essentially pull counter overhand rights, and he has a decent little left hook. He will throw a left hook into a straight right or a left hook into an overhand right a lot of the time. And obviously his wrestling. He has one of my favorite single legs in any of the higher weight classes up there with, you know, Daniel Cormier, obviously. And yeah, as we mentioned, his his passing ability is just so sensational. Again, uses the crossface fantastic from half guard to get into side control. He's one of those guys that does decent work from side control. Side control is a difficult one in mixed martial arts because a lot of people don't want to move into side control that much. Because when you move into side control, it opens up a lot of opportunities for your opponent to get like double underhooks, for example, and then go underneath and and try to escape that way or, or frame on you and, and create space and then they might be able to get back to their feet. If you're trying to keep your opponent on their back, often guys will askew side control in favor of just going straight to mount. They'll try and knee pass directly into mount or they'll just they'll try and get you to turn over so they can take the back and they, they won't fuck around with side control. But Glover will happily take side control. He will happily do it. And I, I appreciate that. He's pretty old school in that sense. And he's always willing to go for a fucking submission. Again, we reference the Krilov fight. Sometimes to his detriment. Sometimes you want to you wanna yell at him and go, No dude, just sit in fucking guard and beat the shit out of him. Don't go for the goddamn submission. Don't drop for the fucking armbar. What are you doing? But yeah, he's, he's heaps of fun to watch. He is slow as shit though now. So... <laughs> and he's coming up against a guy who is a bit... You know, it kind of labors around a bit, but is nonetheless quite fast in the form of Yuri Prohaska, who I think has really emerged recently as a force of nature. I remember watching him versus Jay Kuhn back in September of 2018. That was a Risen card. Because Jay Kuhn, he trained here in Australia for a bit with Absolute MMA. And. This was before he he got arrested, like, last year or something for trafficking cocaine, was it? I'm actually going to look this up because it's a pretty funny story. Oh, wow. Okay, he got... That's not good. Yeah, Jay Kuhn was having a bit of success in Risen, like, a couple of years ago, like 2019, 2018? 2018 it must have been, I think? Yeah, he, he'd had, like, three victories in a row, including one over Satoshi Ishii. Satoshi Ishii, I believe that was his name, and looked, was looking good, was looking like he kind of reformed his career over in Japan, and then he got, he got caught by the feds, and now, according to MMA Junkie, as of November, yeah, this was November of 2021, Jake had been sentenced, or has been sentenced to eight years in prison, to import, he's pleaded guilty to importing large amounts of meth and trafficking cocaine, oh, so I got the trafficking trafficking cocaine bit right so yes he he came over to australia and was training at absolute mma for a little while and now he is in 
He was in Australian prison. How delightful. But yeah, I watched that fight back in September of 2018, and fuck me, Yuri Prohaska looked like, he just looked like a fucking beast. It's like whatever Hewn threw just bounced off of him. was completely inconsequential. And then, yeah. I mean, he lost that fight a while back. The last fight he lost was to... The last fight he lost was to King Mo back as part of the Risen Grand Prix back in 2015. That one... Well, he beat Nemkov, and Nemkov retired at the end of the first round because the rounds were like 10 minutes long. Well, the first round was 10 minutes long. I think it was the same situation as Pride, where the first round's 10 minutes long, and then you have two more rounds, I think, which are five minutes long. So I got to the end of the first round, and Nemkov retired. And so then that put Prohaska through to the final, and he came in against King Mo, and they fought for five minutes. They were halfway through the round. And, yeah, look, Yuri didn't look particularly... (laughs) Yeah, he didn't look all about it. He looked pretty slow. He looked he looked gassed as fuck, basically. Yeah, and so so that was his last loss. But he's since he since TKO'd King Mo in the third round at Risen fifteen back in two thousand nineteen. That was impressive. And then he had that victory. He had a couple of so so victories that weren't super convincing. Like they were against that they were decent victories in and of themselves, but I thought the, the individuals he beat weren't that impressive. Like he beat Fabio Maldonado back in two thousand nineteen, KO'd him. And then he got that KO over C B C B Dolloway in two, in December on the um on the New Year's card in two thousand nineteen, going into two thousand twenty. And then that was his last fight in Risen. And then he comes into the UFC. And I'd watched a couple of I'd watched a couple of Yuri's fights in Risen going into that Vulcan Uzdemir fight. And I thought, man, his chin is just out there. And Vulcan, you know, he's a very he's a very up and down fighter, but he does have power. I think his fundamentals have gotten a lot better. His low kicking is so much better these days than it used to be. And he has a decent left hook. His right hand is a bit wild and sometimes doesn't look fundamentally sound, but he has good timing. And so I thought, you know, Vulcan's going to pip him. And Vulcan very nearly pipped him. In the first round, it looked like Vulcan had his number and was, I think he knocked him down and very nearly finished him. And then, what do you know, Yuri comes out 50 seconds into the second round, gets that knockout over Uzdemir. And it's brutal. It was a brutal knockout. And then obviously that leads into his... May 2021 main event versus Dominic Reyes, who was coming off of two consecutive losses, one to John Jones in a fight that he probably shouldn't have lost, and one in that that TKO loss to Jan Blahovic for the vacant light heavyweight championship after John Jones decided he was going to fuck off and go up to heavyweight. So Dominic came in and looked, I thought, really good with his counter left hand, but he could not stave off, he could not stave off Prohaska. Yuri, man, his shifting combinations are brutal. They're brutal. It's weird because he can be a, a a decent a decent fundamentally sound striker, but then there are so many times where he just starts shifting forward into combinations, and honestly, he's more effective when he does it. It's weird. When he starts shifting, you're like, oh, yeah, no. For some people, this wouldn't work, but when you have a guy who's this athletic, who's this relentless, nah, it works. Because he just gasses the shit out of his opponents. Most of them cannot deal with the pace that he puts on. You see so many TKO finishes 
in like deep into fights. Yes, the the Dolloway and the Fabio Maldonado ones happened within two minutes of the first round, but there's a lot of second round victories. Or there, like Risen fourteen, he he knocked out or he TKO'd Brandon Halsey. He got that finish six minutes thirty seconds into the first round. So that's six minutes thirty seconds of Halsey defending that constant forward pressure from Prohaska. That's why he got finished. You know? Yeah. He's just a relentless force of nature. And his ground game is basically, I want to punch you in the fucking skull. He does not fuck around with jiu-jitsu. In his own words, basically. I mean, Yuri is an incredibly strong dude in this light heavyweight division. This is a division full of really strong guys, but Yuri is really strong. Glover, I think, is going to have some issues when he's in on the single leg. This is my issue for Glover. He's going to be in on the single leg and he's going to get elbowed. I think I think Yuri Prohaska is going to finish the job that Carl Robertson failed to fail to finish. <laughs> uh, I can definitely see Glover in on that single leg and Yuri just pumping, pumping Glover's head with elbows. I can see the rear hand uppercut for Yuri landing constantly from both stances, southpaw and orthodox. I think if you're Glover Tashira, you want to get in. You want to get in on. You want to get in double underhooks. You do not want to fuck around and give this guy enough space to work in the clinch. Because I can see Prohaska taking opportunities to get wrist control and then spinning into elbows, or coming out with you know big combinations out of the clinch. Yeah, I think if you're Glover Tashira, you want to break shit down and get most of your takedowns not from the single leg. If you can get a reactive double leg, go for that. But for the most part, yes. If you want to go for the grappling, look for underhooks, get trips from the body lock. That should be your approach because you do not want to fuck around on the outside with Yuri because the pace is going to be too relentless. Even though Glover has some of the best cardio in the light heavyweight division, as we've seen on numerous occasions, he can... He can keep going. He will weather the storm and he will keep firing. But Yuri is a... He's got a crazy pace that he puts on these guys. I think Dominic Reyes has a pretty decent gas tank and he looked completely gassed leading up to the finish. He was constantly stepping backwards, constantly trying to check Yuri's forward pressure with the counter left hand and was having quite a bit of success with it with the counter left hand followed into the right hook. And then he additionally was having some success with a left body kick as well. But ultimately he was gassed as shit towards the end of that second round. And I believe that's when the finish occurred. The finish, yeah, 4 minutes 29 seconds into the second round. So 30 seconds before the end of the second round is when that that elbow occurred and put Dominic out. And Dominic just looked completely dead at that point in terms of gas tank. I don't think you're going to see the same kind of thing from Glover because Glover's gas tank is so solid, but he just can't fuck around on the outside for an extended period of time because at some point he's probably going to get tired. I'm sure Yuri will get tired, but Yuri kind of reminds me kind of reminds me of Justin Gaethje back in that period of Gaethje's career where he was like, you know, I, I will get tired. I will look tired as shit, but I know how to fight through that and my opponent is not going to know how to fight through it the same way that I do. That's how Yuri Prohaska comes across. Like, he knows he's going to be tired as shit, but he knows his opponent is going to be more tired, and that drives him. Yeah, I see that fight being a banger. I think Yuri probably wins it, but 
I think, yeah, if Glover can get in on the double underhooks and, and trip from there, he might have some success. I can't remember off the top of my head what Yuri's underhook is like from the bottom. Because expect Glover to go into half guard. He'll he'll take guys down and he'll end up in half guard, and then that's where he'll do a lot of his ground and pound from. I can't remember how Yuri is off of his back in bottom half guard, but I assume he's not a, not going to be as good in that position as he is in other positions. So I think, yeah, he definitely wants to avoid that, basically. But I think Yuri, for the most part, on the feet is going to... He's, he's got the speed and the athleticism to avoid the counter overhand right from Glover. I don't think Glover's fast enough with the left hook to the body these days to land against someone as good as Prohaska. I think Yuri should be a little more fundamentally sound to win this fight because the shifting combinations are going to give Glover opportunities to get into the get into the clinch. And, I mean, he's got to be careful because there's probably going to be up elbows. There's probably going to be spinning elbows from Yuri. And there's going to be the rehand uppercut counters. But, ultimately, the clinch is Glover Teixeira's that's his wheelhouse. That's where he wants to be. So if they're in that position, even though Prohaska offers a bunch of different threats, that is Glover's, that's his space. So I think Yuri, yeah, he probably wants to be a bit more fundamentally sound fight on the outside and not just shift forward into combinations and give up underhooks for Glover to use. Even if he sees an opportunity to land a shot, he should just, he should sit on the outside, pump his jab and then come with big, a big right hand down the middle or a big left hand down the middle. He switches frequently, so... Yeah, that should be a sensational fight. And then, Jesus Christ, it's fucking 53 minutes in. God damn, I don't even understand how I do this. We've really quickly got to talk about Zhang Weili versus Yuan and Jacek, the rematch, because that's probably the fight that I've honestly been most excited for this week. I know I just spent 50 minutes, 40 minutes, talking about Glover Teixeira versus Yuri Prohaska, but ultimately, I think the fight that I'm most interested in is Zhang Weili versus Yuan and Jacek 2. 2. Obviously, both of them have one of the greatest fights you'll ever fucking watch back in 2020, right before the pandemic occurred at UFC 248, which also preceded one of the worst fights you'll ever watch in the form of Yoel Romero versus Israel Adesanya. How good, how good. But yeah, it was a five-round war. Joanna, her volume, her combinations were sensational. I thought she was firing on all cylinders, particularly early on in the fight. It was just Zhang Wei Li, man. She is so powerful. She was just landing the more significant shots, and ultimately they were having a bigger effect on Joanna than Joanna's shots were having on Zhang Weili, even though the volume was there for Joanna. Ultimately, I think the three rounds that we're going to be seeing in this fight, because the first fight was a championship fight. It was for Zhang Weili's strawweight championship. I think the five rounds sort of suited Zhang more because it just gives her more opportunity to land the big shots. You know, she can give up two rounds of volume to Joanna, but she can pull a Piotr Jan and just land a bomb at the end of the third, fourth, and fifth, and she can take those rounds because those shots are going to be so much bigger than the volume strikes of Joanna. Joanna pumps out that double jab cross and then goes with the outside low kick, and then Zhang lands a massive counter left hook. And who comes off worse for wear in that exchange? A lot of the time it's going to be Joanna. So I think three rounds is probably better for Joanna. Just because it's going to give her, like she does, she can just pump out her volume for three straight rounds and she doesn't have to worry about two additional rounds where she might get pipped. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Zhang comes back after the two consecutive losses to Rose Nami Yunus. That second fight was so close. I mean, 
Was that a split decision? It was a split decision. I scored it in favor of Zhang Wei Li. I was coming into that fight going, oh, I hope Rose retains. But ultimately, I was I was really impressed by Zhang Wei Li. I just didn't expect her to, to show as much adaptation to what Rose was showing her as she did. thought she was really impressive with her distance management. Didn't really allow Rose to work into a comfortable rhythm like I think she wanted to. And I thought, I mean, ultimately the loss for her came in the form of the wrestling, particularly in the fifth round where she just got held down for for the, you know, the extent of the round. Yes, so I, I think ultimately the adaptations that we saw out of Zhang in that Rose rematch bode really well for her in this context. I thought she was so much more calm than she has been in some of her other fights. Just, I thought she was really technically sound. I don't know, man. She looked really good in that fight. Really good. I thought she shut down the threat of the high kick. As Like, Rose did not have that high kick threat anywhere near as much as she didn't. Obviously, the first fight, she ended up with a fucking high kick. But I thought Zhang Wei Li addressed that threat very effectively. She wasn't reacting as much to the low kick threats, which is what set up the high kick in that first fight. She was trying to pull back her her lead knee, which there, there were a bunch of videos prior to that fight of, hey, here's Zhang Weili training with Senchai, and Senchai is showing her this leg kick defense. And then she she did it in the fight with Rose, and then Rose went high with the lead high kick and knocked her the fuck out. <laughs> so that's not ideal. So there was a lot less... She wasn't as reactive to the low kicking threats as she was in that first fight, and it gave her a lot of success. Yeah, I just thought she looked really fundamentally sound in that fight. Joanna hasn't fought since the Whaley fight, if I recall correctly, now that I'm thinking about it. Has she? No, her last fight was Zhang Whaley, UFC 248, beginning of of March 2020. Prior to that, she had that beatdown, that five-round beatdown of Michelle Waterson. Man, I remember watching that fight and just going, wow. I love this. I love a five-round Joanny and Jacek beatdown. It felt like it had been a while. It hadn't been that long. I guess she had she had a three-round beatdown over Tisha Torres. It wasn't a beatdown. It wasn't, wasn't the same as the Michelle Waterson fight. The Michelle Waterson fight was everything that you've ever loved about Joanny and Jacek encapsulated in a 25-minute package. It was so good. Her distance management was sensational. Lateral movement. Brilliant. Her jab looked fucking flawless. The push kicks down the middle. Beautiful. Outside low kicking at the end of combinations. Gorgeous. Stitching in the right hand perfectly and then bouncing out of the way of the return fire. She dealt with the side kick of Michelle Waterson really effectively. I don't know, man. It was just such a comprehensive beatdown from Joanna. It was so impressive. Yeah. I just want to see that Joanna again. I want to see that Joanna again. I'm really split on this fight. I truly do not know who is going to win. I think Zhang Weili showcased really good high-level high level strategy in that rematch with Rose. And she has been fighting more frequently than Joanna has as of late. I mean, Zhang, she beat Joanna at UFC 248. And then she lost the belt to Rose. And then she, she failed to recapture the belt against Rose in that rematch that, she, you know was a split decision. So she's only fought two more times than Joanna in the same amount of space. But that's still quite significant. She's fighting a lot more frequently relative to Joanna since that first fight. So 
I think that might come into play, but I, at the same time, I don't know. Joanna is just such a consummate professional. She's been in the game for so long. She used to she used to compete in in Muay Thai and kickboxing when she was when she was younger, and she she fought quite a bit in those in those sports. So she's had a lot of experience prior to mixed martial arts, and then she comes into mixed martial arts has a has a short amateur record against Paulina Suska and actually I did not realize this she fought Karolina Kovalkiewicz back in 2020 in the amateur circuit and then she comes into professional mixed martial arts and then you know she she's had 20 fights now so she's got a lot of experience so I think the fact that she hasn't fought in two years shouldn't be exceedingly impactful because she's got so much experience throughout the course of her career that you know she can just draw on that I think ultimately, yeah, she just needs to keep the volume up and she needs to avoid the left hook. She needs to not get her fucking, her legs butchered. And yeah, pull counter right hand from Zhang Wei Li, similar to Yuri against Glover. Yuri's got to avoid that pull counter and so does Joanna. I think you play on the outside, you try and jab Zhang and try and, yeah, just draw out the right hand and then counter jab her counter jab or throw a two-punch combination, throw the one-two as a counter to the overhand right or the straight right from Zhang. That's what I want to see. He'll have to do a lot and just use a lot of lateral movement. Harken back to that fight against Jessica Andrade at UFC 211, just just constantly moving side to side and not giving her a stationary target to work on because Zhang Weili is going to be a lot better if you are stationary. And Joanna has the gas tank. Over over the course of a three-round fight, she can absolutely maintain constant footwork. So I hope to see that. Based on her videos on Instagram, it looks like she's been working hard as fuck. I don't doubt that she's been working hard as fuck because Yoani and Jacek, that's what she's constantly doing. But yeah, I hope she's brought her A game for this one. It's going to be a really difficult fight. I do. I think I am taking Joanna just because it is a three-round fight and I think she does have the advantage in that context. But I don't know, man. This one's a close one. So yeah, as a as a quick breakdown of some of the predictions, I think Yuri Prohaska beats Glover. I think Valentina beats Talia Santos, but I also just don't give a shit about that fight. So I don't think that's a genuine preview or prediction. I think Joanna decisions Zhang Wei Li. I think Andre Fialio knocks out or TKOs Jake Matthews. I've got Jack Della Maddalena decisioning Amiev. I've got Wu Choi over Kilabao, but that one's, oh, I don't know. That one's a difficult one. Uh, I don't really have a prediction for Steve Garcia versus Hayasar Mayashate, who, again, his name I have probably completely butchered just there. I've got Brendan Allen over Jacob Malkoon, just because I think his bottom game is really solid, and he, he's, he was pretty good at getting back to his feet against Punale Soriano. So I think, yeah, I think Allen's going to be able to get back to his feet against Malkoon, and he's going to be able to, he's going to be able to work him on the feet. Uh, we didn't even talk about Kang. Kang versus uh, Batgirl. Batgirl? Yeah, I like Kang. He's got that fucking banger of a fight with Ricardo Ramos from 2018, which not that many of you motherfuckers have seen. But he's just been kind of up and down. He's had a couple of losses here and there. He's actually been pretty successful throughout the course of his UFC career. Had that no contest with Alex Caceres. And then, which which was technically a loss. It was just overturned because Alex Caceres... What's it called? Tested positive for uh, marijuana. Yeah, but Kang had that fight with Ricardo Ramos. That was a banger. And then he went on a three-fight win streak against Ishihara. Brandon Davis, who's a pretty decent name. Split decision. That was a pretty close fight, if I recall correctly. But I thought I gave Kang the win there. 
And then uh, Luo, Liu Pignon won a split decision over him back in 2019, at the end of 2019. And then he had that loss to Raniaya. And you're like, Haniaya, sorry. And it's like, bro, what are we doing here? What are we doing here, mate? It was nearly two years after his previous fight, though. So, you know, I'll give him a pass on that, I guess. A pretty extensive layoff. He's going to be really interesting to watch. I'm very much excited to see him return back to the octagon. I have not watched Dinar Baccarel before. Off the top of my head, I cannot recall. Lost to Chris... Lost to the Grits. Gutierrez. Lost to Chris, Chris Gutierrez. Wasn't he the one who beat the fuck out of... Um, nope, I'm thinking of the wrong person. I was thinking of the motherfucker that beat the shit out of Joe Lozon a while back. I was like, hold on. What? Yeah, no. Chris Gutierrez. Lost to him by spinning back fists and elbows. Hey, also, you know, Danar Baccarel also beat Brandon Davis himself. Everyone beats Brandon Davis, apparently. Everyone does. Except for fucking Randy Costa. God damn it, Randy Costa. Get your shit together. I love you, dude. I want to see you put some fucking wins together. That's entirely... That's entirely... You know, not what I'm talking about. Alright, so I've waffled on for about an hour and five minutes. What else can I talk about? What else can I talk about? Sorry, I blocked my fucking... I blocked my face with my hand there. Yeah, one last thing I was going to talk about. Uh, so I did that Australian Mixed Martial Arts Prospects video a little while ago. So I highlighted Jack Jenkins, Sean Etchell, and Cooper Royal, who I, I think are sensational prospects for the Australian Mixed Martial Arts scene. Jack Jenkins, I think, is probably going to get a call up to the UFC or is probably going to get a call up to Bellator or one or something. I don't know where, but he's going to get called up to something pretty soon. And Cooper Royal, when he goes professional, I think he's going to be fast-tracked in whatever promotion he is. Probably he's going to end up in Eternal or, or Hex, and he's going to be fighting for a belt pretty quick. Sean Etchell actually got an opportunity this past weekend. He's kind of the first one of my predictions to to make it to the big stage. And by big stage, I mean like the, the exploitation stage. Because leading into this UFC 275 event, the UFC has been hosting this Road to UFC series of events there were four of them if you go on usc fight pass you can watch them all and it's basically just like a bunch of regional local fighters competing for spots i guess they're kind of competing for spots on the ufc roster i i can't i didn't know whether it was a tournament or what the fuck was up whether it was basically contender series shit it basically looks like they're being paid minimum wage minimum wage in a mixed martial arts a professional mixed martial arts context getting paid minimum wage to pull up and have a fight, and then the promotion can go, eh, no, we actually don't want you on our fucking... We don't want you on our roster, actually, huh? Lol. That's kind of what the vibe was. Okay, now I'm actually looking through, like, the, the Twitter post from the UFC Asia Twitter... Yeah, the UFC Asia Twitter put out a, a tournament bracket for this Road to UFC thing oh, and... Technically, Sean Etchell versus Yuchita Takaru was not listed. It was a non-tournament bout. And it was on the second... You can watch it on the second episode of Road to UFC. It's on UFC Fight Pass. And yeah, no, it was just uh, really disappointing because Sean Hatchell was on the back like a couple of minutes into this fight. He's got the back and he's threatening a rear naked choke. And then he... I think he got... He got... Dropped over the top. And yeah, gave up his back like near instantaneously. Uchida... He took the back and... Bada bing, bada boom. Got a rear naked choke in a couple of minutes. So yes, one of my predictions for 
an Australian mixed martial arts prospect has not panned out in the big leagues. At least at this point. Maybe he gets another opportunity down the track for the UFC, for a different promotion. I don't know, but yeah. Well, it wasn't an ideal start to my, hey, here's my class of 2022 mixed martial arts prospects that I've highlighted. Let's see if they, uh, they what, you know, they, they turn into anything significant. Well, the first one didn't. Didn't have a, didn't have a great showing. Looked pretty good prior to the fucking, uh, prior to giving up his back, looked pretty, de- pretty decent. Just the most irritating thing about this. Because Sean Etchell is, I mean, as per his nickname, the buzzsaw. He is just a, just constantly active, constantly in his opponent's faces. Really fun grappling. Ugh, it's really irritating to see him lose. I'm sure he'll get back on the horse and, and he'll put some shit together and hopefully he can he can end up in a major promotion in no time soon. But yeah, given how, how infrequently he's been fighting as of recently... It's a little bit scary. It's a little bit scary him losing at this point in his career because he's a little bit older now. He's about a decade into his professional mixed martial arts career. So I think he had his first fight in 2012 and he still isn't... I mean, this was his first opportunity in a major global promotion. So yeah, not ideal. Not a, not a great start to his major global promotional career. But oh well, hopefully he gets back to this point again. I think that's probably it for me. What is on after this week? There's a Cater Emmett card next week. That's got some... Oh my lord, I just noticed Adrian Yanez is on that fucking card. As is Ricardo Ramos, man. Joaquin Buckley, Kevin Holland versus Tim Means, Donald Cerrone. Oh, they moved the Cerrone-Lozon fight to that card. That's in front of a live audience, actually, now that I'm recalling. Eddie Wyland's taking on Cody Stamen. That's fun. Phil Hall's taking on Darren Wynn. Roman Delize, huh, Roman Delize's back, taking on Kyle DeCause, Court McGee's back, what the fuck, Julian Marquez, that's fun, taking on Gregory Rodriguez, that is, that should be a layout for Julian Marquez, in my opinion, damn, that's actually a really fucking solid card, I quite enjoy that card now that I'm looking at it, looking up and down, yeah, so next week's actually got a decent card, we'll talk about that in more detail next week after this card, but yes, I'm very excited for USA 275. There's a couple of bangers on this part, on this card. Anyway, I'll fuck off now. Have a good Saturday or Friday night. I don't know, wherever the fuck you are. Thank you.